Good morning. If you would, let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, your, your living word, that you're a God who communicates through the Bible. And I pray that you'd open our hearts to receive it this morning. I know you want to speak to us and you want us to listen and for our lives to reflect what happens during these moments together. That only happens as we uh, take it in with the Holy Spirit's understanding and live it out in His power. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity to, to listen to you. And I invite you to do what you wish in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome back. Uh, whether in your living room or dining room, wherever you are this morning, we're glad you're here. Last week was great to celebrate the risen Christ together. And today we're going to continue to do that as we jump back into our series in the book of Ephesians. We'll be in chapter 4. But I wanted to start out by just reminiscing a little bit about one of my favorite childhood toys. It was the Transformers. When they first came out, and, and they were real metal back then too. They weren't the plastic ones that come out today. This was before the movies. It's, it's hard to describe the, the excitement that came to a little boy when, when you got these, these toys that, they're not just vehicles, but they, they transform into these robots. The slogan back then when the cartoon came out was, more than meets the eye. And some of you had those. But it was so awesome. You, you get this toy and say, whoa, that's not just a semi. That's Optimus Prime, the leader of the Autobots. And I thought about transformation and transformers, and I thought a lot about God's plan for Christians. His plan for us is that we are transformers, that there should be more than meets the eye to our lives. When, when people look into our lives, they should have this thought like, whoa, that's not just another human there's something very different about that one all because of christ and i want to look at that before and after a little bit with paul this morning if you have your bibles i'd encourage you to open them to ephesians chapter 4 verse 17 first we're going to look at the before condemnation before christ what what does that look like what did it look like for those of us who now know Christ, and what does it look like if you're listening in and you say, I, I don't know Christ yet? Paul explains, verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now if you know, he's writing to the city of Ephesus, and most of these people are Gentiles who have come to Christ. So what's he saying? He's saying you shouldn't walk how Gentiles walk before Christ not how you used to walk. There should be a, a difference now. And then he, he gives seven characteristics of life without Christ, what that condemnation looks like. And I want to go through it. It's not a pretty list, but it's in the Bible. It's reality. And so we're going to look at it. He says they, they walk in the futility of their minds. That's number one. What is futility of the mind? Well, I'm going to paraphrase Blaise Pascal as he looked at that phrase he basically broke it down like it's our incredible ability to spend hours and hours and days and months and years focusing our lives on trivial matters that have no eternal significance whatsoever and to almost ignore things that really do matter 
for eternity. That, that's futility. It's the meaninglessness of life under the sun in the book of Ecclesiastes. Life, try, try to live it apart from God. It's meaningless. He goes on to say in verse 18, they are, number two, darkened in their understanding. Number three, alienated from the life of God because of the four ignorance that is in them due to their five hardness of heart. Hardness of heart here means this is willful ignorance. In Romans 1, it's described as suppressing the truth. One man described this as they refuse to know what they know. They, they, they push it down. 19, they have become, number 6, callous. You know what that word means. Uh, it's an insensitivity to feeling, cannot feel. Now, I think about calluses. They can be good in some circumstances. Like if you're a handyman or, or a woman who uses your hands a lot, those calluses build up, and it's helpful because you, you don't hurt your fingers every time you work on that task. It's good in that case. But calluses are not good for a heart. Paul talks in 1 Timothy 4.2 about a seared conscience. That's a conscience that no longer does its job. Uh, Bishop Mool describes these people as people who have gotten beyond the pain of sin. And I think about the pain of guilt. Why does God send it? He sends it to, to help us see our need for him to repent and come to him for life, to Jesus, right? But if we willingly choose to short-circuit that pain and we become calloused, we can end up dooming ourselves to eternal destruction apart from God's intervention. So six was callous, and seven, the last one, they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Both of those terms in the Greek have sexual connotations, and as one man put it, modernity is rationalized sexual misbehavior. You don't need to look far to see this in our culture I'll give you one example. You only need to hear of what happened in our Super Bowl halftime show this year to, to wrap your mind around what this means. But you look at that list of seven things, life before Christ, and, and I think about them, and I think, you know, these are not characteristics someone would put on eHarmony to draw in the potentials, right? Like, hi, my name is Todd. I like long walks on the beach. I'm alienated from God, I've got a hard heart, and I've given myself up to sensuality. It, these things are hard to admit for ourselves apart from Christ because of our pride and our spiritual blindness, but it is the biblical reality of life apart from Christ, and if we will seek Him and ask Him to show us the reality, He will show us. Thank God Paul doesn't stop here. He goes on to talk about transformation after Christ. Here's where the hope comes in. If you feel a little bit desperate after listening to that list, hang on. Verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. When he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, what's he assuming? 
He's assuming that when we come to Christ, there is this change. There's to be a difference in our thinking, our minds, and our behavior. Why and how? Well, when you look at verse 20, you see that the first source of this transformation is relational. It's relationship with Jesus Christ that brings about this change. Learning and believing Christ, who is the truth. That's where it begins. Now, I want to break this into three things here. Look at verse 20. He says, you learned Christ. He doesn't say you learned about Christ. You learned Christ. He is literally the subject. It is in your relationship with him as you learn who he is that it starts to transform you. Verse 21 says, you heard about him. But interestingly enough, some of your translations say heard of him. In the original Greek, that about and the of are not there. It literally says in the Greek, you heard him. What, what that means is he is the teacher. As we listen to God's word through the Apostle Paul today, who received his message from Christ, you are learning from Christ. Jesus said it this way in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and they, I know them and they follow me. When we come to his word, we are literally hearing him. Through the Spirit. How awesome is that? And the third thing, he says, you are taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. That means he is the sphere. We live and learn in the presence and power of the crucified and risen Christ that we talked about last week. As, as Christians, we have literally died to our sins and risen again with him spiritually to a new life. Talk about the opposite of the futility we talked about earlier. When you come to Christ, you find the epitome of meaning and purpose and, and power. But what have we been taught in him? Verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Why are the desires of life without Christ deceitful? Because we all know this, right? They promise joy. And what do they bring? They bring the opposite. They bring destruction. That's why they're deceitful. Verse 23 says, You've also been taught to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. How does that happen? Jesus said it in John 17 as he was praying to his father. He said, Sanctify them. Set them apart by the truth. Your word is truth. It happens as we spend time in God's word and let it have its way in our lives. Are we doing that? Earlier this week, uh, for Easter, we got, got one of our sons a card game called Ramen Fury. If you love ramen soup and you love card games, this game is for you. It's, it, it, it's a game about ramen. But before we even played, he, he said that game looks too complicated. And I asked him, I said, did you read the rules? He said, no. <laughs> How do you know? We ended up going through the rules, and we had a great time playing the game. Now, I know sometimes we look at the Christian life, and there is a lot to it. It, it can be confusing, and it's a process. But if you're sitting there today saying, man, I'm so confused. I'm not growing. I don't know what to do in my Christian life. I want to ask you a question. Are you spending daily time in God's word? 
even then it's still a process and and it takes time and it's a lifelong journey but are you reading the bible i hope so i talked to somebody in our church this week sandy we were on the phone and, and she said during this time where where they've been spending a lot of time at home she decided to pull out her bible and just start reading through it and and she said she started in genesis and now she's in the book of numbers and and i said keep it up that should be a daily thing in all of our lives i hope sunday's not the only time that's how we become renewed in our mind so you put off your old self be renewed in the spirit of your minds verse 24 to put on the new self created after the likeness of god in true righteousness and holiness now this is an awesome verse here this is the second source of our transformation if you believe in the god who created our universe as i do what we're reading here is that in christ in the power of god the supernatural power of god we become a new creation of his created after the likeness of god and true righteousness and holiness that's the second source if you're a christian you are a new creation in the likeness of god wow i wouldn't even say that if it wasn't written there because it sounds almost too good to be true but it's there but paul what's he doing here he's starting on the inside right because that's where transformation begins. He's starting with our thoughts and our desires, our will, our, our hearts, really. Because biblical transformation, you got to know this, it's always inside out, okay? Biblical transformation never starts at list, look, looking at a list of do this and don't this. It starts with our belief. It starts from, from who we are in Christ to how we live for him. That's why when you go through this book of ephesians as we have been the first three chapters are all about the blessings we have in christ what god has done for us it's not till you get to chapter four that paul says now walk worthy of that and here's what it looks like because if we've got the belief right it leads to outward change in our behavior with this put off and put on you got the picture of clothing right I'm going to paraphrase Paul here, and he's saying, look, you put off the old and put on the new when you first came to Christ. Do you remember that when you came to him in faith? Now, every day because of that, you've got a choice to walk in that new reality. So why are you still wearing those old rags? Why, why are you still thinking like that? And why are you still doing that? Some of you wives might relate to this. I know myself included some of us husbands we get two or three favorite shirts and you get us a, a few new shirts for Christmas and we keep wearing the old ones even if they got holes in them and you're like why are you wearing that old ratty shirt when I just got you this for Christmas I'm used to it it's the same way with the old life we sometimes fall back into it because we're used to it but Paul is saying man you are a son or daughter of the king now and God has given you a wardrobe to match Remember that reality that happened the day you got saved and keep wearing that every day. He, he, he said, put off the old self, put on the new. Romans 6, 11, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Every morning as a Christian, we ought to wake up and say, because of Christ, sin has no power over me today. And I, can, I am alive to God in Jesus. I can go out in his power and the power of the spirit and live righteously. 
I love how Warren Wearsby put it. He said, take off those grave clothes and put on your grace clothes. The New Testament expects transformation in the lives of God's children. It's assumed. It's all over. And I wonder, do we still expect that today? I look around and I'm not so sure we always do. I, I think about how Christianity is sometimes presented today. And I got this picture in my mind. It's almost like someone walks up to a fast food counter. They think Christianity is have it your way right away. And, and they go up there and they say, I'll take the number one, the Christianity combo. Uh, but if you could hold the persecutions and the trials, I'm allergic. Extra blessings, though, please. I like those. Hold the fellowship in the church. That's, th that's for sharing with others. And this is just for me. Oh, and last but not least, I'd, I'd like Christ as Savior, but leave out that lordship sauce. When Jesus changes things in my life, it gives me gas. You know, I want heaven, but I, I want to do whatever I feel like here. And I imagine, like, what if the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter were sitting in a booth watching this? And I imagine Paul looking at Peter saying, did, did they even get our letters? Did they, did they read them? Like the Bible in the New Testament expects that when the crucified and risen Lord shows up in your life and he sends his spirit to live in you, that that is to transform our lives. So you say, what in the world does it look like? That's some lofty truth. Well, here's one thing. When you have a savior, God, who became flesh and walked this earth, you can expect that transformation is going to be down to earth too. It, it's not going to be just this lofty idea. He's going to show us exactly what it looks like. And I think as we look at five examples of what transformation should look like in the Christian life, it's really practical right now because there's a lot of pressure right now, right? A lot of stress in our world, whether it's health or, or finances. And sometimes when the pressure's on and we got a lot of questions and the stress is up, that's when it's easy to let our guards down and, and start living in the old life. We need this reminder of what it looks like to walk with Christ. So he's going to give us five examples. I'm going to walk us through. The first one is, if you're a new creation in Christ, your life ought to be transformed from tall tales to truth. Verse 25, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are members one of another. I thought about this, and I was asking myself the question, why are we sometimes less than real with each other? Isn't it a defense mechanism to kind of protect ourselves sometimes? We, we think we're in a competition with Joe. So we lie to Joe to make ourselves look better than we really are or to make ourselves look better than him. But what if we realized in the body of Christ, it's not me versus Joe. Joe is part of the same body of Christ I am. And when I lie to Joe, I hurt the whole body, which ends up hurting me as well. Then you start to see the folly of it. I think of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, the, the time-traveling movie, where there was one set of Bill and Ted that went ahead of the other Bill and Ted. They, they went in the time machine and went back in time, and then 
the, the ones that had already traveled in time came back and met the, the later Bill and Ted, and the ones who had time traveled some started to give the current Bill and Ted some advice, and the current Bill and Ted start to wrestle with, what if they're not telling the truth to us? How do, how do we know that they're telling the truth? And they look at each other, and they're like, why would we lie to ourselves? <laughs> and, I'm thinking it's that kind of moment when we realize that the body of Christ, we're all in this together. Why would we do that to each other? But here's the underlying key in the question. Do we really believe we're all in this together at church? Are we cultivating encouraging grace-filled relationships and behavior in the church that reflect that? relationships and in, in talking with each other in a way that communicates, hey, I'm, I'm secure in who, who I am in Christ, so I'm not competing with you anymore. We are cooperating toward a common goal. I'm not here to beat you down. I'm here to build you up. It's, it's when we start to cultivate that kind of environment where we really believe we're in this together that we look at the foolishness of lying and say, well, why would we lie to ourselves? We ought to be transformed from tall tales to the truth. Second, he goes on to tell us we ought to be transformed from harbored anger in our lives to holy anger. Verse 26, he said, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. What's that mean? It means don't sin when you're angry. Don't hold on to it for a long time. Deal with it quickly why give no opportunity to the devil when we harbor anger it can be an open door to satan and his demons to say come in and have your way in my life and no, nobody plans for this to happen i mean do any of you have a to-do list for tomorrow that says number one do laundry number two wash the car number three let satan take over my life probably not right but what happens he sneaks up on us right we, we have an itty bitty grudge against somebody that's making us angry and we carry it for a day or two or three and and before long it's become this gigantic dark cloud that that sucks the joy out of activities that normally we would really enjoy right or maybe we stay up too late say something snarky to someone at our house that hurts their feelings and when they talk to us about it we get defensive and we angrily refuse to admit what we did and apologize and hours become days days become weeks weeks become months and then you look at each other and like wow how did we get so far apart what happened we opened the door for satan to come in here and and put a wedge we have to beware of the devil when we feel angry. We also have to realize we have an important part in that, our, our sinful flesh. I think about a story I read about a little girl who was fighting with her brother, and, and she, she pulled his hair, and she, she kicked him. And, and her dad called her into the room and said, we need to talk about this. And, and I don't want to hear any of this devil made me do it stuff. And she said, oh, no, the, the hair pulling, that was the devil's idea. But kicking him, that, that was all me. <laughs> we all know deep down we, we have a part that if we're not careful, that old self, that flesh, we, we can uh, be a part of this as well. But what does this ungodly anger look like? 
I thought about it, and I define ungodly anger. It's this selfish, long-lived inferno that leads to sinful and needless destruction. But why does Paul say, be angry and sin not? Can you be angry and sin not? Is there such a thing as good anger? If so, what, what does that look like? Well, if ungodly anger is a selfish, long-lived inferno that leads to sinful and needless destruction, then I'll call godly anger an unselfish, short-lived spark that leads to righteous action. How do you tell the difference? You, you first start to feel angry. How do you tell the difference? Well, I'll give you one test. After you ask the question, why am I feeling angry? Here, here's another one. When you first feel the anger, ask yourself, do I want to talk to God about this? Like, am I inclined naturally to talk to him about this? And if not, if you don't want to talk to God about it, if I don't want to talk to God about the anger I'm feeling, there's a really good chance it's because I already know it's selfish, stupid, and sinful, and he's going to tell me to confess it. But I don't want to confess it. I want to let it burn. So if you don't want to talk to God about it, that could be a huge red flag. If that's the case, I'd encourage you to talk to him anyway and confess it. Lay it down. It's no good for you or anybody else. But, but what if you do if you feel your anger is godly, that it reflects his heart toward a situation? Like, I, I see this command of yours being violated, God, or I see these people experiencing injustice, or I hear of innocent babies being aborted day after day after day, or I hear people spreading lies about someone I love, or I see this bully making my child's life miserable, and it makes me angry. What do we do then? Well, we need to realize that even... This kind of anger has a short shelf life before it goes bad in our lives. We have to deal with it quickly and handle it with caution. Remember what James said in 120, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And Paul said in Romans 12:19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So what do you do with that if you feel it's godly anger? You take it to him. You say, Father, I put this anger in your hands. And then you ask him, is there any action you would have me take from this spark of anger to make a positive difference? And if there is, that's why he sent the spirit to live in us. He will lead you in how to move forward in a way that's holy, productive, and free from sin. Let's go to number three of five here. From stealing to sharing, 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I love this one, and you see this with a lot of these. It's not just a list of don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. There's often a positive transformation to what we ought to be doing it the christian life is not just a list of don'ts but sometimes we we think it is i 
If you have ever been a kid, which all of us have, that enjoyed time on the TV, or if you have kids, you know what I'm talking about here when it comes to the topic of screen breaks. And I'm just talk, not just talking about this current generation of kids. I get it, because I, I grew up on video games, too. Sega Genesis and Nintendo back in the day. I didn't like screen breaks. And what's the kid's first reaction usually when the parent says, hey, it's time for a screen break? Often I would think, oh, now there's nothing to do. <laughs> right? Any of you kids relate to that? But what, what do us parents have in mind? Something much more noble, right? It's not just a prohibition. It's an invitation to adventure, right? To go take a walk or shoot some hoops or go on a bike ride or play the piano or read a great book. <laughs> There's a difference in perspectives, right? But what about us as we walk with God? When we hear God say, don't do this, don't do that. Oh, man, I don't want to take a sin break. Now, now I can't do anything fun. And I hear Jesus saying, is it really just a prohibition or is it an invitation to join me on the adventure of living a full life in me and, and bringing others along for the ride? Something that's going to bring you a whole new level of joy that you can never get with that, that sin. So I thought, what if we as Christians started making a list of all the exciting things that Jesus invites us into? And focused on that. In this case, in Paul's letter, he's talking about the joy of sharing with each other instead of being a taker, being a, a giver. And we've seen this this week. Pastor Paul told us about a Hispanic church that's reaching out to the Spanish-speaking population of Prescott Valley and anyone else that shows up that needs food. They're, they're meeting them and praying with them and passing on canned goods. And they talked to Pastor Paul and said, hey, if you guys would like to donate canned goods, we'll pass them on to folks who are hurting during this difficult season. That's something we're invited to be a part of. That's exciting. We get to share. Don't see the Christian life as just a list of don'ts. Think about, wow, what is he inviting me into? Number four, transformation is from corrupting talk to constructive talk. Verse 29, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Now, a lot of us, when we read these passages about speech, we think first about swear words, and profanity is included, okay? We're going to talk about that more in the next chapter, but corrupting talk is more than five or six words we don't say in this house. It is talk that unnecessarily injures and tears down another person that's why he says but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear i thought about proverbs eighteen twenty one this week it says death and life are in the power of the tongue do we realize the great power for harm or good in our mouth as I looked at the, the Greek word for corrupting, it's pretty graphic. It can mean rotten, and it was used in Greek to describe rotten fruit and even bad fish. I thought about that, like, wow, what if we could smell our spiritual breath? Like, what if the things we said had an actual physical odor to it? What if, what if when I'm tearing somebody down, it smelled like rotten fish? 
Uh, that's, that's what it smells like to God. You know, a lot of us put crest in our mouths to freshen our physical breath, but we need Christ in our mouths to freshen our spiritual breath. And we need to ask the question, is my talk bringing others down or is it building them up? He goes on to give us a really powerful motivation. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This is a relational motivation, right? That the Holy Spirit, God himself lives in me and he's sealed me until that day of redemption. And I think about that and I think that there are certain things we would never ever say in front of another person because we don't want to offend them, right? What about the Holy Spirit? He is always here. And I look at my life and you look at look your life and think, think about the things we sometimes say right in his presence. And this verse says he's not only offended by corrupt talk, he's actually saddened by it. It breaks his heart. So I look at that and I'm like, man, if we don't care about what corrupt speech does to our own hearts or the other people we're talking to, maybe this question will shake us out of our apathy regarding our speech. Do I care at all about grieving the Holy Spirit? I am guessing that deep down we do. So what do we do about it? I thought, man, what if we just slowed down? Because often we get in trouble when we're quick to speak, right? It's the opposite of what James tells us to do. Slow down. Say, well, what I'm about to say, corrupt or build up, will it give grace to those who hear or will it give something altogether different? And will it bring joy to the Holy Spirit or will it bring grief? The last one, from a hard heart to a tender heart. We talked about hardness of heart and the calluses being a part of the former way of life back in verses 18 and 19, right? Life before Christ should not characterize us now, but I want to show you some symptoms of a hard heart in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. I, I read those things and, and I view them almost like they're things that harden and clog our spiritual arteries and you see anger all over that list again that's why we got to be so careful with it. anger wrath malice listen to what frederick buchner said about anger he said of the seven deadly sins anger is possibly the most fun to lick your wounds to smack your lips over grievances long past to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come to savor the last toothsome morsel, both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Whew. So if that list in verse 31 is the, the list of what hardened, clogged spiritual arteries look like, what do healthy spiritual arteries look like that are flowing with God's spirit and his will? Verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Why? 
verse 32, as God in Christ forgave you. Here's a historical motivation. The forgiveness of God in Christ. I think about that. If we got hardened, clogged spiritual arteries, the stint we need is the cross of Christ to open the flow God wants to have in there again. Our motivation for being kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving does not come when we look at the people around us or how they make us feel. It, it comes when we remember how God has treated us in Christ. Do you remember when you first crawled to the cross, broken, unworthy, ashamed, head bowed down, knowing that you did not deserve his love? But as you turned to him in faith and repented of your sin, he gave you the righteousness of Christ and forgave you, didn't he? He did that for me. Now Jesus looks at us and says, Luke 6, 36, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Now as we look at those five things, I want to ask the question as we close, how's the transformation coming along? And as I was telling Pastor Aaron earlier today, when I look through this passage, right away I see things that need confessed. It, we're on a journey, right? We're, in, we're all in a process. And I, I like the description one man gave of this process of growing in Christ on this planet. Sometimes it looks like giraffes on ice skates. <laughs> it ain't always pretty and we fall down. But he's faithful, right? But what do we do if we find that we've fallen down in one of these areas? We confess. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank God for his faithfulness. He doesn't give up on his work. Right? He's going to complete it. You may need to confess to another person. Husbands, you may be like the guy in the cartoon that, that walked out to the doghouse in his backyard and the dog at the door said, uh, will this be a one night or your usual extended stay. It, it, you may need to apologize to your wife. I've been there. Do it. Kids, you may need to apologize to your parents or a friend. Confess it and, and move on in the, the growing. Start with that confession. We have a gracious God in Christ. But second, look back to the source and motivation of the change. We've talked about four of them throughout this message, and I want to go back there, because what did we say at the beginning? Change doesn't come from looking at the behaviors. It comes from looking at what we believe, and I want to review those real quickly. Look back to the relational source in verse 20 and 21. I am learning and believing Christ, who is the truth. It's that relationship with Christ, okay? Then we look at the supernatural source in verse 24. I am a new creation made in the likeness of God. What if you proclaim that every morning and lived as though it's true? Because it is in Christ. Then we look at another relational motivation. I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit, verse 30. Wow, how would that transform the things I say and do? And last, that historical motivation. I'm looking to the cross of Christ as my example of tender-hearted forgiveness. Third, and finally, you confess, you look back to the source of motivation, then you look ahead to the possibilities. I want, I want to invite you to close your eyes for a minute. And can you imagine this? Can you imagine a group of people 
who are real with each other because they really believe we're all in this together? Can, can you imagine a group of people who confess selfish anger quickly and use godly anger as a spark to bring about positive change? Can you imagine a group of people who are more interested in sharing what they have than taking all they can? Can you imagine a group of people who prefer to build others up rather than tearing them down? Lastly, can you imagine a group of people who are so kind and tender-hearted that they race each other to be first to forgive the other one? God imagined it. You know that? He, he gave it a name. He, he called it church. It was God's dream, and we get to, to live in it and invite others in. So in words... Hearkening back to a century past, I say to you, Autobots, roll out. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your grace. I look at that list at the beginning of this passage, and all of us can see ourselves apart from you in there. But all of us who have come to you have felt the wonders of your love and grace at the cross and the power of your spirit and your resurrection. It's not enough to receive that. You call that to transform our lives, our behavior, our words, our speech, and we want to join you on that. Father, I pray if anyone's listening, say, man, I'm, I'm in that first list of seven. I've never come to Christ. Draw them home today. Draw them to the cross. Let them know that you died for them, for their sin. And to give them new life. That they will turn to you in faith and repentance and receive you. In Jesus' name, amen.